but I'll read uh, chapter 45 of Isaiah. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. I will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds, among the potsherds of the ground. Did the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and create mankind in it. on it. My own hands stretch out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and they will be yours. They will trudge behind you and coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you saying, surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will, not, you will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words to us. Uh, we thank you that we don't have to wonder what you think or wonder what you're about or wonder really um, what, what we're supposed to be doing here on this earth. Lord, you, you've made it clear, you've made it plain, you've given us these words, and you're speaking these words to us today, all of these words. So Lord, as we look at a, just a section of what we just read, 
I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds that we'd be able to understand this. Uh, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is a spiritual exercise. And so, Lord, we need your help. I pray that, you would, um, that we would not just hear these words and understand them, but also, Lord, that we would be able to put them into practice. So I pray for my words, that they would be from you. And I pray we would all grow in grace together. Amen. Amen. So we are just going to stick in those first eight verses, but there's a lot of similar kind of things that kind of go on in this chapter. So it's not like we're missing out on some kind of like very important specific part of doctrine that we haven't hit yet or will hit in the future or even in this chapter. So uh, this is kind of like the, um, the, uh, the, the best bit of chapter 45 of those first eight verses. So that's where we're going to go. And also, as we go through, um, whoop. There's Easter lilies, Easter lilies. Okay, uh, there's a little website there, redeemermcr.com slash ask. If there's any questions that come up um, during the sermon, you can uh, go to that site. Now, I will not know who sends it, so if you send it after the sermon, I can't get back to you. I can just say, put it in the WhatsApp group or email or something. Um, but during the sermon, if you have questions, we, will, uh, we do go back or if there are questions that come about. But often, because I'm such a good Preacher, I'm just such a good, I just explain these things so well. No one ever has any questions, so this is good. Um, you know, like, no God, please God, make Greg stop. We don't want to hear any more of his voice. Uh, so, but yes, you saw the Easter lily. So uh, I did not know what a traditional flower for Easter was. Uh, I had to look it up. I had to Google it. I'm not a gardener. Um, but there's a thing called an Easter lily, which, you know, makes sense for Easter. Maybe if I was really with it, I'd have an actual Easter lily here with me, but instead we have a picture of it um, from the internet. It's pretty, right? Very pretty. Now, if I had Easter lilies, they would probably look like this because I am not a great gardener, as I said. Uh, and you notice, too, how this is like almost tottering on the edge of the table. It just seems like precarious in all sorts of ways. It doesn't even see alive. Um, that is not how Easter lilies are supposed to look. Now, I kind of think maybe this is how my life is like in real life, where I'm not really doing super great. And I don't, you know, I'm not ticking all the boxes. I'm not measuring up. Uh, there's so much potential, but really, in the end... What was he but the sad little houseplant that died slowly teetering on the side of a desk? Now, I don't know where you might feel like this morning. Um, if you feel like you're winning at life on the left, or maybe kind of failing or losing at life on the, on the sorry, this is, that's your right, this is your, no, yeah, I had that right. You're left, you're right. If you're winning at life, you're on the left. If you're losing at life, you know, you maybe you're, you feel like you're a bit on the right, maybe a little bit of both, depending on what, you, what we're talking about. I think the thing is, we all want to be full of life. We all want to be like winning, whatever the thing that we're doing. Uh, and, and some of us are, and some of us are in some areas. But also might feel like parts of us really aren't winning at life at all. We're kind of droopy, and we're not really alive. But what we see in chapter 45 is that whether you're winning or losing or all the kind of variations in between, is that we can all miss out on its important parts. You can be winning at life and miss out on its most important parts. And whether we feel like we're winning or losing everyone, wherever we are, we don't have to miss out on the most important parts. See, Jesus came to earth. He died and he resurrected so that, for that very reason, so that we wouldn't miss out on what life is, is all about. So you can be winning and miss out completely. And you can be losing and not miss out on what's most important and meaningful. So here in, in Isaiah 45, we're going to focus here on these first eight verses. And what we do is we get a glimpse of, of God's purpose for all kinds of people. God's purpose for you. Uh, for those who don't acknowledge God in their lives, to those who might know some things about him, from people who are winning or losing or all the kinds of things, what we learn first is everyone kind of misses out, but everyone has the potential of, not, of that not to be the case. 
And what God makes very clear is his purpose in the life of people is to make our lives flourish, to be like that Easter lily, that, that, that one that's alive, for it to be growing. This is a blooming. This is a coming to life. This is like a new fruit growing on a tree or something sprouting from the ground. But we're going to start with, there's a few different kinds of people here that God is speaking to. And the first kind of person we're going to look at is God's purpose for those who don't know him. There's this guy, Cyrus, that we've talked about a bit. He's, uh, in a bit. Um, God has a purpose for those who don't know him yet. And we hear about this guy, Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian king uh, of, uh, in another kingdom. He didn't worship God. He worshiped another god called Marduk, which required child sacrifice, like actually putting your kids to death in front of gods in order to, you know, to win at life in that religion. Um, and Cyrus never followed Jesus, never, or never followed God, never followed Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He, he never did. But God has a purpose for him, regardless. The way the, the, if you um, remember the historical context here, uh, what Isaiah is looking forward to is these, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, is going to be taken over by Cyrus and some other nations, um, and they're going to be carted off. They're going to be these religious refugees that are going to be living in a land that's not their own, speaking languages that's not their own, having to learn new life, have new homes, get new jobs, all sorts of things. But after a bit of time, about 70 years, Cyrus, this Persian king, is going to allow these Israelites back into their own land. He's going to basically say, okay, you're allowed to go back to Jerusalem, and you're going to be allowed to rebuild your city. So all of this is looking forward to all that. Like, this hasn't happened yet. So this is looking forward to when Israel is able to come back to their own land and restart. And by the way, this is like very specific prophecy. You name, I mean, Cyrus gets named all the time. It's very specific. And God is calling Cyrus, this, this, other anointed, this other king, his anointed. That's like God's chosen person. This guy who's sacrificing his children to these other gods, that's who God's anointed is. And what we read in those first kind of verses is that God is allowing Cyrus to flourish. He's subduing nations before him. He's like breaking these bars of iron, doing all these kind of powerful things for Cyrus. And Cyrus never follows God. Cyrus is known by God. Cyrus is blessed by God. So that, and we have a reason for that in verse 3, if you look at it, um, I'll give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, and here's the purpose. For all this, for all of Cyrus flourishing, for all of Cyrus' blessing, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So ultimately, what God wants Cyrus to know is himself. And ultimately, Cyrus missed out. You can be successful in life and completely miss out, uh, still be incomplete, completely miss out on what the most important stuff is. And here's the thing. Even though Cyrus never kind of followed God, God still used Cyrus for his purposes. Uh, verse 4 is talking about, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, this is God's people, of Israel, my chosen, God's people, I summon you by name. He's still talking about Cyrus. He's summoning Cyrus by name, and he's bestowing this on Cyrus a title of honor, though you don't acknowledge me. Cyrus is not even acknowledging him, but there's this purpose that God is using Cyrus for. Even Cyrus seems to be kind of ignorant or doesn't really, not that bothered about it. So you don't have to know God or acknowledge him. He will kind of use you one way or another. The question is, do you want to get in on that as well? Now, maybe there's uh, some people you know, especially maybe here in Charlton, that seem to have it all together. That's kind of like the thing, if you're here, you've got to make sure you have it all together. It might seem that these people who have it all together, at least on the outside, like, don't really need God. Like, some of our neighbors are like, man, they have a really great life. Like, what? 
they don't really need God. They just seem to be doing fine. Like they go on great holidays, they have great cars, they have great houses, and they're great jobs, and good family. It's not like they're in pain or in need of anything. But that is only true. The fact that like, them not needing God is only true if the only thing that God can offer is a slight incremental change in your living status. If that's the only thing God can offer, then yeah, a lot of people don't need God. But if what God offers is bringing the dead to life, like not just a qualitative change, an incremental change, but like this qualitative, like completely new kind of change, that actually, that actually now changes the situation a bit. If what God offers is uh, living a new life, then that's something that no job, no family, no house, whatever the thing might be, can give you. And this is also a sign here, God and Cyrus, of how much God loves people, whether they acknowledge him or not. God isn't only concerned about the people who worship him. He's concerned about every human, because every human is his creation. God is making Cyrus's path clear. For anyone who has ever had experiences in their life where your life is kind of ticking along as it should, even if that's only temporary, even if it's only like a few minutes when you wake up in the morning, that is nothing less than God's love raining down on people, the people that he created, the people that he loves. So may those of us who do acknowledge God like live in such a way that can acknowledge him so here's the thing. You can be like Cyrus. You can be a world leader taking over new territory. You know, it seems like everything's going smooth. You can take over nations. You can, you know, get refugees and then be so kind as to let these refugees go back and rebuild their city for them. You know, you can live the best kind of outward life, live in that kind of opulent life, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, but miss out. You can be winning at life and still completely lose the most important thing. You can still be chasing after meaning in all of it. See, I think we all have an image of what winning at life looks like. And we live in a place here in Charlton, but also in Manchester in general, that really values working hard, moving up, doing what you can. And this is why a business person, she can be at the top of her game and still not feel like it's enough. J.D. Rockefeller, a famous American magnate, magnate? Mogul. How about I say mogul? He was a mogul many things. Um, who at the top, this is, you shouldn't say words you don't know. You haven't put in your script. Um, uh, he at the top, so in like the 20s-ish? I don't know when he was even alive. He, it, he was alive at a time where uh, we think billionaires now are like, you know, have a lot of money. But uh, J.D. Rockefeller, at the top of his, at the height of his wealth, 1% of the entire U.S. economy was his wealth. That's pretty crazy. Like, I don't think anyone's like that. I mean, maybe if you live in a small country now. But anyway, uh, there was a reporter that asked him, uh, to a guy who had more money than anyone has ever, like, more money than he probably knew, probably more money than we could even fathom a number of. He was like, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. This is the most richest guy who had everything, and he didn't have enough. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Now we can say, oh, isn't that crazy, those billionaires. That's us, you know? How much money would be enough for your salary? Oh, man, if I had, you know... If I had a 10% pay rise, that would be amazing. And then you get that 10% pay rise, you're there for a couple years. How, are you, so you don't need any more money for the rest of your life. Ah, a little bit more would be kind of nice. You know, what about, wouldn't it be nice to have this, this you know, if only my son was just a little bit more obedient. If only like the school was just a little bit more cool. If only you know, our house was a little bit more whatever. We all have that little bit more thing in all of us. All of us, we're kind of meant that, we're, we're worked that way. Another uh, famous person, Jim Carrey, has often been quoted as saying this, I wish everyone could get rich and famous uh, and everything uh, they ever dreamed of so they can see that is not the answer. 
I wish I could have it all so they could see actually it's not the answer. That's a guy who has it all. Without being connected to God, our successes are hollow. There's a lack of meaning in them. And we feel like to get meaning, we need just a little bit more. But that's not true. What we need is God himself. And he never withholds himself. He never would give just a little bit more. He gives you everything. For real life, we are made with a purpose to be connected to our creator. So God has a purpose even for those who don't know him or for those who will never know him. But God also has a purpose for those who do know him. God has a purpose for those who know about him. In this section, uh, this next section of verses, God is speaking to people who are religious. Uh, these are religious refugees. Like, think of a refugee from Ukraine right now. It's kind of a similar kind of aspect. Um, they're not winning at life. They're missing out, right? In fact, these are the kinds of people that are easily overlooked or become a little bit of like, a little bit frustrating, a little bit of a pain to take care of. That's the kind of people who, who would be Israel now. These are these refugees. In verses 4 and 5, God moves heaven and earth for his children, for Israel, for them to have an earthly home. He has chosen Cyrus, this king, to work in such a way, pave the way for his successes uh, for the sake of his own people. And these people are not winning at life. They're not even necessarily following God. I mean, the whole reason they're in this mess to begin with is because they chose not to worship God. And yet he still pursues them. He calls them, his people here, he calls them his servant. He says that they're chosen. That's like royal appointments. To be a chosen servant from a king is to, is to have like an elevated status. I mean, you're still a servant. So you, have, you know, you're not, you're not the king. But you, you, have, you have work to do as a chosen servant. So is there hope for those who are religious and lost? And I really hope so because that's us. We know about God. There's no real homeland here. There's no real dedication to God. Their own culture's survival is hanging by a thread. These are the kinds of people that society overlooks that we don't really like to think about. So there's nothing really significant in these people themselves, but God has called them his people. In themselves, there's nothing amazing, but God has chosen to set his love upon them. And that changes everything. So the question for Israel and for us who, who, people who might know about God is are they going to get on the, in on this, or are they going to be like Cyrus and miss out? What was supposed to happen was for God's people to be his chosen servants. Now, servants don't just hang about. Like, they don't just kind of, I mean, if you've ever been to, like, a, we love going to National Trust properties. If you've ever gone to, like, a National Trust property, you hear these stories of servants, and they worked from, like, I don't know, 5.30 a.m. to, you know, 10 p.m., and they thought it was the best life ever, whatever, sounds horrible. Um, but they had a lot of work to do. Servants have a lot of work to do. They don't just hang out, they have work to do. And part of the purpose for God's people knowing him was for the world to know about God. That was the purpose for Israel to being a nation to begin with. And this comes all the way back from Abraham. So before Israel was a nation, Israel existed as a family. It started from Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, we read this. This is God talking to Abraham and his descendants, which will become the nation of Israel. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the thing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was the whole purpose for Abraham's family, for uh, Abraham's family that was going to be a nation, was for them to be a nation that blesses other nations blessed to be a blessing. God's purpose for those who know him as his chosen servants was to be a people whom others would see and actually be attracted to it and not be like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that, you know, that circus freak show. 
that others would see how these people were living and be like, huh, the way they're doing life is a bit different than the way that I'm doing life. I think actually it might be better in some ways. And they'd be like, what's going on there? And as they're curious and investigating that, God's people would have the words to tell them, well, it's not because we're awesome. It's not because we're nice. It's not because we're this really cool nation. It's not because we're this really cool church. It's because God is at work here, and that's the only way we can be who we are. See, there's a difference between knowing and knowing about. This is something that we religious people get mixed up all the time. One is personal knowledge, and the other is like Wikipedia knowledge. I remember um, learning how to play. There's these certain kind of notes on a saxophone called altissimo notes that um, they have a certain kind of way to put your fingers, but also like this other kind of weird mouth things. They're very difficult notes to play. Um, I remember when I was uh, in sixth grade, when like 12 or 13, like going to online forums, trying to find like, you know, how do you, how do you play these notes? What are the things? What are the, what's the, the secret recipe? Um, and I was looking up doing the research. I, that was like knowing about Right? I was doing the research, knowing about how to play these particular notes on my, on my horn. Uh, and I remember uh, one thing that a um, professional saxophonist told me. He said, now here's the information. He gave me all, like, all the fingering charts and things like this, um, where to do, how to do all the things. He's like, that's the information. But it's more than knowing the information, because this is you know, just like the first step. You need to like, practice this. You need to be working on it. You need to be working it out. You need to be trying it all the time, and you're going to be failing for you know, months. Uh, and that's the difference between knowing about, and, and actually knowing. Until I took those, those charts and put it on my horn and tried to make the notes, which I still can't do, um, I, I didn't know what knowing was. I only knew knowing about. And at this time, uh, in Isaiah, God's people know about God more than they know God. And that, that's the thing for us in the church. I mean, Flannery O'Connor's quote, I think I even quoted it last week, the easiest way to hide from God is in the church because we get to hear about him all the time, we get to seem like we're good on the outside all the time. That's how to be religious and miss out on God altogether. So is there hope and purpose for the religious loss? Well, thankfully, God tells us that there is. It would be great if I said, nope, and then that was it. <laughs> Who wants to eat lunch? No. <laughs> thankfully, God tells us that there is hope. It's not just hope and purpose for religious people, though the Lord knows that we need it. There's hope and purpose for the world. God has a purpose for the world. Let's look at verse 6 together here. God says, uh, this is his purpose, for the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, from the east to the west, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Now, if you remember when I was reading this chapter, God says this often, I am the Lord, there is no other. He wants people to know who he is, uniquely who he is. And what God is saying, the people who live from where the sun rises to where it sets from the east to the west, as a way of saying in all places, that people in all places would know that only God is God, would know that only I'm God. People who speak different languages, people who come from different religious backgrounds, people who have lived different kinds of lives, God draws all kinds of people to himself. And here in verse six, he wants us to know that only he is God. Now, we talked about how Cyrus was winning at life and how God's people kind of weren't at this point, but here, God's speaking to all kinds of people. And God tells us how he will make sure that our lives will flourish. And if you're reaching for something more in your life, like these two verses are for you, verses seven and eight. I form the light, this is God speaking. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You, heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. 
See, God brings darkness. He brings light. He brings disaster. He brings prosperity. Only God is God. Only God can do those kind of things. That's a God-like kind of thing to do. And he has purposes behind all of that. What God does is he brings light out of the darkness. He brings prosperity out of disaster. And what exactly is he talking about here? Well, here, for the immediate audience, for who Isaiah is writing to in this historical moment, it's Israel's experience. They've been in darkness and disaster. And they're just kind of, they will eventually come out of it. But God is going to bring light and prosperity. And this is also, though, more than Israel's experience. The Old Testament, all these stories that we get, uh, stories that God has handed to us, are shadows of what's to come. When, when Jesus, it, the resurrected Jesus, was walking with disciples on the road to this place called Emmaus, he teaches them how to read the Bible. And the very, the, it's a very kind of short little sentence. What we hear is that, uh, that he opened up the Bible and taught him how all the stories are about him. So all these stories that we read in the Old Testament are about him. This is God himself telling us how to read his book. This story, as amazing as it is in itself with its prophecies and with God caring for his people in this time, is telling us something more. It's telling us about the cross and the resurrection. Because out of darkness of the cross, there is new light. Out of the disaster, the horror of the cross, there's peace. And because Jesus has died and resurrected, that makes verse 8 true. Verse 8 cannot be true if Jesus didn't die and resurrect again. Verse 8 is this image of, of rain, of like April showers bringing flowers. Salvation springs up. Uh, to translate spring up literally is to blooms, kind of this like agricultural thing. Salvation, new life um, it is blooming in verse 8. Like a flower previously in the ground, now fully opened, fully enjoying sunlight in all of its unique glory. But unlike April flowers, what springs up here never goes away. Because eventually those flowers will fade and they'll end up like that Easter lily on the side of the table there and die. Especially if I'm in control of it. But verse 17 calls this salvation eternal. Israel, uh, if you look at 17, Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. It's not just something that they're going to get like in this historical moment, but even here, to these people who are hearing it here, are hearing about something that's going to be everlasting. That's about Jesus. Never to wither, never to die. Now God's purpose for people with whatever background exists, with whatever circumstance we go through, is for us to not remain in the ground, but to bloom into life. This is what flourishing means. It means to experience life in all its fullness. You can have it all and not have it all. You can be religious and completely miss out on the God you say you worship. God knows this and is out to save us from ourselves. To no longer be full of ourselves, but to be full of him. And this leads to living a new life that's constantly blooming in a state of always being alive. That sounds really good. I want to always be alive. I want to always be kind of fully experiencing life. And what God does is he makes a way through the darkness and disaster that we experience and leads us with a purpose. And this purpose is nothing less than to be fully alive. And here's how God makes this way. Notice in verse one, God talks about Cyrus being anointed. We talked about that briefly. Uh, being an anointed one is someone who's like set apart for some kind of special purpose. And Cyrus had a special purpose in history as we read here. Cyrus was God's anointed, his chosen servant, even though he didn't know it uh, and didn't seem to be that bothered about it if he did. But there's another Cyrus, one who does acknowledge God. And this new Cyrus gathers in people who are religious gathers in people who aren't religious, those who are winning, those who are losing, and everything in between, so that none would miss out, so that all those gathered would acknowledge him. See, Jesus unleashes God's love and care to all kinds of people. With Jesus coming to earth, the heavens are ripped open, and now the clouds do shower down 
God's grace, God's love, God's goodness, his righteousness on all kinds of people so that we wouldn't miss a life that's worth living. And Jesus has made it clear. He came in the flesh. He lived in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He resurrected in the flesh so that salvation would bloom and that righteousness would flourish for his people to experience what Isaiah here, the translation here says, prosperity. Now, before you think of prosperity being just about money, let's just back that up for a moment. Prosperity, is, this, is, this word is a very pregnant word. There's a lot going on in this word. It's full of meaning. It's, it's this Hebrew word called shalom. You may have heard that before. Uh, it's more than money. It's like all-encompassing peace. And peace doesn't actually quite get to it because normally when we think of peace, we just think of peacetime, like the absence of war. It's the absence of war, yes, but it's also like the presence of everything full, everything, like, everything good there. It's an all-encompassing kind of thing. If a biblical writer wanted to get the idea of like the most full, most content, most peaceful state of being, they use this word shalom. That's how they use this word. For a human being, it doesn't get any better than shalom. This is the best thing we got. So think of whatever like the best situation in life could be. Maybe on the beach, sipping a drink. You know, maybe back in Corfu, you know, wherever it might be. You know, li- living your best life. Like, oh, this is the best. And you're kind of, you can nap. You're whatever, you can do whatever you want. Um, whatever that is for you. That's what is going on inside you. That's better than that circumstance of being on the beach or in the mountains or wherever, whatever kind of ticks the boxes for you. It's what's going on in your soul. That's what shalom is like. There's no anxieties. There's deep breaths. There's an all-encompassing, all-encompassing sense of peace and calm that come from being loved by God himself. And that is a kind of flourishing Cyrus missed out on. Cyrus and all his power and all his money, he couldn't, you can't buy that. He didn't get it. He missed out on it. That's a kind of flourishing that is unattainable outside of Jesus because that's God-level kind of stuff. That's only the kind of stuff that God gives. Life is blooming where it wasn't before because Jesus went through darkness, disaster, and death. And he came through in new life, and that new life comes through Jesus' resurrection. And the great thing about Jesus is he's so generous. He doesn't keep that to himself. He doesn't keep new life to himself. He gives it. He gives his new life to us. And that's what makes Easter Sunday is such great news, such a great celebration for us as we get his new life. Jesus resurrecting is good news to those who are new in him. Life blooms where our lives didn't bloom before. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, we become the righteousness of God. That righteousness that God is raining down, that's what we get to become. Righteousness is like all the goodness that God has. He has a lot of, God has a lot of goodness. And that's what we get to become because of what Jesus has done. So the question for all of us is whether you're far from God, whether you're close to him, whether you feel like you're winning at life, losing at life, or you know, particular areas of life, whether you qualify yourself as religious or not religious, we all have the same question. Where are we holding ourselves back from God? Because we all are. Every single person here is. We all are. We all hold ourselves back. We restrict ourselves from God. Where are we holding back? It could be um, that you know, being part of the community is a thing where is an area where you're um, being held back. So if you're watching online and you haven't come in person yet, we would love to have you here. Or even if you show up in person and you really feel like you're part of community yet, yet because you're holding yourself back, um, I get why you would. I totally get why you would. But you're missing out. Or it could be that you're still investigating this person of Jesus. Or maybe you've like kind of grown tired of him, taken for granted. It could be there are some specific places in your heart that are, that are sensitive and you want to hold those back because... The times in the past where you haven't hold those back, you've been hurt really bad. Look, whatever we hold back from him, 
We hold back from his shalom, from his prosperity, from his peace. It's for our good that God pursues us. It's for our good that he has a purpose for us. And all of Redeemer, the thing that we organize for Redeemer is all organized around that. We don't just do things to do them. We organize them to, for this to happen in our lives. Missional communities that we have aren't just for showing up in person, though that's good. They're for showing up in full, like for who, fully who we are. Sundays aren't just a thing for you to come and watch, whether you're in person or online. It's for bringing our whole selves together as we celebrate these new lives that we have. When we have larger mission-focused stuff in the community like Easter Monday's thing, it's not just to do something because we need to figure out something to do. It's to invite more people into this new kind of full life that we as a community get to experience. And the only reason any of this matters, and not just the church, but our lives, the only reason any of this matters is because the most important part of our lives is that Jesus is alive, that he has risen. He has given this new life to us. The heavens are rained down. The earth has opened up. Salvation is now springing up. Righteousness is flourishing. God's people get this peace and prosperity that we have all been craving. And celebrating the Lord's Supper together is one way we anticipate